0: listening to Sermons by the Park from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and our current sermon series is called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? Here's a hint. It's Jesus. This series examines the stories of Jesus dining with friends and foes and everyone in between to learn about how God meets us How Jesus uh, embodied and practiced hospitality in unexpected ways, and how we perhaps can meet others through the power of a shared meal, a shared word, and a shared vision of a new kind of community and belonging. Here's this week's
1: message. The first scripture reading today is from Luke uh, 9, 18 to 20, 23, 27 to 36. Once, when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah, and still others, one of the ancient prophets, has arisen. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered the Messiah of God. Then he said to them all if any want to become my followers let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. But truly I tell you there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings Jesus took him While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent in those days, told no one of any of these things that they had seen. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word.
0: Our second gospel reading this morning continues in Luke's gospel, now in the 10th chapter, verses 38 to 42. And you can find that in your pew Bible. But this morning, I'm going to read to you from the APS version. That's the Aaron Pratt Shepherd version. (laughs) Let's continue to listen for God's word for us here today. Now, as Jesus and the disciples were on the way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha hosted them in her home. She had a sister named Mary who went to sit at the Lord's feet and listen to what he was saying. But Martha was drawn away, working herself to the bone, serving so many. In her frustration, she came to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving by myself? Tell her to help me. But Jesus, who is Christ the Lord, answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by your many tasks. But there is only one that you must do. Mary has chosen this better part for it will not be taken away from her. You are anxious and troubled by many tasks, but there is only one that you must do. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let us pray. You have spoken, O Lord, and you are still speaking to your church here this morning. You are speaking to ones who are heavy laden, worked to the bone and at the end of their ropes. You are speaking to the ones who have come with hearts open to you to assume the humble posture of prayer. And you have a word, too, for those who might be overhearing your good news in the midst of their many tasks. Whoever and however your word needs to be heard, may it be so. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable even pleasing in your sight. O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. It's called dramatic irony. It's when a character in a story or a play doesn't know something that the reader or the audience knows. I, and perhaps you, were introduced to this concept in the reading of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, in one of the final scenes, Romeo discovers Juliet cold and still enough that he believes her to be dead. Only we know that she is not dead, but merely sedated. The irony heightens the drama of the rash teenage boy's decision and his response to his heartbreak, which is, which is to kill himself. And then, of course, the tragic catharsis of the moment when Juliet wakes up from her sleep, to discover that Romeo has ended his own life. Now, the Bible, too, is full of dramatic irony. In fact, the underpinning of so much of the ha- behavior that we see in the Gospels from all sorts of people, whether the disciples or the Pharisees or, or almost anyone, really, is the irony that they do not fully comprehend who Jesus is, and that the actions of Many of these characters are fully intelligible if you just understand that they don't know what we as the readers know. It is a timeless question that Jesus puts to his disciples, and to anyone really who comes near enough to ask Who do you say that I am? The story of the Transfiguration shows that it's not enough to simply say the words You are Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah of God, the Christ. Peter seems to get that question right, but he also still doesn't seem to really know what it means for his life. We heard how just eight days after he said this, he and a couple of the other disciples were up on a mountaintop with Jesus, and together they experienced a profound spiritual revelation, the revealing of the glory of God. Now, in the Old Testament, the glory of the Lord, the kavod Adonai, is a fascinating and dangerous power that manifests itself in the world. At times, it's like fire that can burn and consume. At other times, it's like the, the humid presence of a storm cloud sucking up all the oxygen in a given space. Kavod, the word that we translate as glory, it literally means riches, like weight. And it refers to the shiny stuff right? Gold and silver and jewels. And people always have a tendency to get a little loopy around the shiny stuff, I think. So despite knowing intellectually that Jesus is the Christ, Peter still doesn't really understand what that means. And so he experiences this vision of the kavod, Adonai, the glory of the Lord and the prophets, Elijah and Moses there with Jesus. And his response to this is, wow. Wow. Let's turn this sacred place into a church. You see, he's not the first church leader to have a profound spiritual revelation and say, you know what we need now? A capital campaign. (laughs) But the narrator of the gospel tells us, the the very next line basically says something like, he had no idea what he was talking about. (laughs) I wonder if Peter knew that he didn't know. In a similar manner, our second text depicts the coming of Christ into a town and into the home of Martha and Mary. And like Peter, Martha's response to Jesus and his disciples entering her home is kind of typical and predictable. As we have seen throughout the sermon series on the depictions of Jesus sharing meals in Luke's gospel, to provide hospitality for strangers is not only culturally accepted, it is culturally expected in Jesus' time. And so Martha would have set to work, doing the sorts of tasks that Jesus had upbraided his Pharisee host in Capernaum for failing to do, back in Luke chapter 7. She would have gone and fetched water and brought towels so that her guests could wash the dust off their feet. She'd have started the fire in the oven going, she would have gotten the dough ready and, and rising, She would have greeted each guest with a kiss and offered them drinks. Indeed, to welcome him into her home, just a little phrase in the text, would have involved a lot of tasks, many tasks. And it becomes clear, though, that Martha doesn't fully appreciate the significance of Jesus coming into her house that day. Again, the narrator helpfully heightens the dramatic irony of the situation by telling us that Martha is distracted and drawn away by her many tasks. As I looked at the text this week in its original Greek, the word that's used there has a, has a depth of meaning. The word is peri which literally means to draw away, like you would divert water away uh, in, a, in a gutter. It also has the sense, though, and is sometimes used to refer to the activity of removing one's clothes. Periaspato literally means to be stripped bare. And so Martha's many tasks here not only draw her away from Jesus, but they also are draining her of her energy and the attention she really needs to fully apprehend who it is that she has welcomed into her home. She is drawn away and is working herself. To the bone. Now, Mary, on the other hand, has done what is decidedly not the norm in this situation. Normally, she would be fulfilling the duties of hospitality along with her sister, the host, but instead, she chooses to go and sit at the feet of the teacher, taking on both the place and the perspective of a disciple, despite having just met Jesus. It seems like she knows something, perhaps, that Martha doesn't. Now, if we read no further than verse 39, we would have been set up for a real clear conflict between Martha and Mary and their different responses to receiving these strangers. In that moment, I think, Martha's frustration with her sister would have been completely justified. I mean, spare a thought for Martha. She has many tasks and many guests, And they are indeed draining for her. They're pulling her away from the guest of honor. I'm sure she would love nothing more than to pour herself a glass of wine and take a seat on the couch and listen to what Jesus has to say. But someone's got to make the bread. Someone's got to get the water. And finally, she just can't take it anymore. She goes to Jesus and she tells him to tell her sister to get off her butt and come help. I wonder who she thought Jesus was in that moment. She clearly saw him as an authority figure. She probably thought of him as a rabbi in the traditional sense, a teacher. You know, the kind of person who tells others, like her 'er ne'er-do-well sister, what to do. But again, the dramatic irony is that we know this is no ordinary rabbi. This is the Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The very presence of God made flesh and blood. Jesus was indeed an eloquent teacher and certainly an authority in many things, but he also is much more than that. Jesus is no ordinary guest. In fact, as we've seen over and over again in this series, Jesus is often more than a guest when he comes to dinner. He's often more host than guest, even in someone else's house. And so when he speaks harshly to Martha, we were reminded that Jesus is often a pretty poor house guest, that he often speaks harshly to those who host him. Now, many over the centuries have taken Jesus's words to heart as a kind of indictment of the so-called women's work. As he seems to say, it is better to come and be in the presence of Christ, listening in stillness, assuming the posture of prayer, than say, to be about the tasks of the church, like making coffee or dusting the pews. Martha's place in the church is in the kitchen, but Christ, as we all know, is up here in the sanctuary. This is the higher place, after all, both literally and figuratively. But I'm here to tell you today that this teaching fundamentally misunderstands what the text says. You see, Jesus' words here are not about the fact that Martha has these many other tasks, nor even about the kind of task that she has to do. Listen closely again to what Jesus says. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by your many tasks. The first thing to note there is that as far as I can tell, Jesus only uses this kind of double address where he repeats a name three times in the Bible. The first is here, right? Martha, Martha. Another is when he is prophesying against Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. And then, of course, the other one, the other time he repeats a name, the only other time, as far as I can tell, is from the cross. When he hangs his head and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think the thing those three instances have in common is that Jesus is trying to do the same thing each time. He is trying to save someone. From the cross, he is trying to save himself. To Jerusalem, he is crying out to, to the people of that city to save themselves from the institutionalized corruption and, and the complacency of empire. And here, I think, Jesus is trying to save Martha from herself. It's not that Martha has many tasks that Jesus points out. It's how she's going about them. She is anxious. She is troubled. An older translation says, you are cumbered by many cares. I love that phrase. Next time you're feeling overwhelmed and someone asks you how you're doing, say, you know what? I am cumbered by many cares. She's burdened by the yoke of hospitality in that moment. But remember... Remember that hospitality is an expression of grace and love. Jesus is critical of those who refuse to show hospitality. So how could he be criticizing Martha for doing exactly what he expects people to do? No, in spite of the received wisdom of so many generations of misogynistic ministry, Jesus is not criticizing Martha here. He is caring for her. He sees her struggle and in fact, he sees it more clearly even than she sees it herself, as is often the case with Jesus. You see, Martha Martha thinks that all of this is Mary's fault. This is Mary's fault. She, she hung me out to dry. She left me holding the bag. She's over there sitting on her brains like a lazy cat on the couch. And how typical is that? To blame others for our struggles instead of owning the fact that we have limits on our attention, on our energy, on our time. How typical to say, she's the problem, instead of, I need help over here. But you see, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He redirects Martha's attention. Just in the same way that God redirects the disciples' attention away from Moses and Elijah and the boondoggle of the building project on the mountain. And instead surrounds them with a cloud and speaks to them quite directly. This is my son. Listen to him. It doesn't get much clearer than that, I think. The word from heaven on that mountain is, I think, the same word that Jesus has for Martha in her home, and it's the same word that God has for us this morning, that Christ should be at the center of our attention, not because he's a great prophet or a great healer or a great truth teller. Again, he is all of those things, but more than that, Jesus is at the center of our our attention because he is a great savior with the power to point out and then relieve our burdens, and to empower us in the midst of our struggles. Now, speaking as someone who struggles with many tasks, I certainly can feel for Martha in this story. I know in my bones what it is like to be anxious and troubled, because you feel like you're being pulled in a hundred different directions at any given time, and it feels impossible to focus on just one thing. But the thing is, when you're trying to get everything done and you're anxious and you're worried about it, it becomes hard to get anything done. And then that feeling of fruitlessness, of exhaustion, of burnout, it only makes you more troubled and more anxious. And if I'm being honest, I have been in those seasons before. I probably am in that season still, when life seems very complicated. And oftentimes, all I want more than anything else is to just be still and know God. But there is always so, so much to do. And I wonder if there's anyone else who has that feeling, too. Maybe you face too many appointments on your calendar or too many meetings, too many emails. Ours is an age of hyper-connectivity, in which the almost inevitable source of endless distraction drains away all of our attentional resources until we have nothing left to give. Or maybe you're facing a different challenge in this season of your life, the challenge of not having enough to do, of disconnection, of uselessness. Maybe you once had many tasks, but now you don't so much. It's hard to feel useless in a world that only seems to care about what's useful. But Jesus has a word here, too, for you. He says usefulness isn't all it's cracked up to be. Martha, usefulness is not all it's cracked up to be. Sometimes the best thing you can do is to let others have the chance to serve you. And that's why I thank God for worship and for the church where sometimes we serve, and sometimes we are served, but in all of it, Christ is at the center. Christ is here with us to say, I see you in your struggles, and I see you in your troubles, and I have good news for you. You don't need to be troubled by your struggle. The only thing you really need is me. And now, we don't know how Martha responded to this story or to this moment. We don't know what she said. We don't know what she did. The story cuts off right there. It's the end of chapter 10. And chapter 11 begins by jumping away to a different scene where Jesus is praying. And when he finished, one of the disciples asked, Lord, will you teach us to pray? And so he teaches them the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer. And at first I found this narrative break unsatisfying. As a person of many tasks, I want to know what became of Martha. I want to know how she responded, if she understood what Jesus was saying, if it's possible to understand what Jesus is saying. I want to understand it for myself, too. But on second thought, I wonder if perhaps the Gospel is providing us with an answer here, after all. Perhaps the answer the answer to what is really important, what we really need, is found not so subtly in the words of the prayer that we pray each week and that should be on our lips, that could be on our lips, especially in those moments when we need help. The prayer goes something like this. God, you, you are holy. Make your presence felt in the world and in our daily living. Forgive our missteps. When we fail to serve you rightly, we don't always get it right. And so help us to be gracious when others fail too. Strengthen us against what leads us into exhaustion. Deliver us from anxiousness. Then we can live in the light of your grandeur and the glory of your majesty, in which all of life is transformed to be more beautiful and more joyful and more lovely. That's Jesus' prayer. That is our prayer. Amen. Thank you for listening. I hope this week's message was a feast for your ears, that it fed you body and spirit. And I hope that you will come back and join us again next week here with Sermons by the Park. To find out more about Union Congregational Church, you can always visit our website, churchbythepark.org, or you can follow us on social media, at Church by the Park. The theme music for this week's message is by Carmen Maria and Edu Espinal. It's called Ratatouille's Kitchen. Now from all of us here at Union, God's grace and
1: peace go with you. you.